Welcome to the Or Halev podcast with Rabbi James Jacobson Mazels. So last time we started talking about constructive conflict. How when we're faced with difficulty, when we're faced with conflict in some way, how do we relate to it from a place of wisdom, from a place of skill? And um, I'll remind you of the, the first four steps that we talked about last time. I believe it was all four steps. If I didn't talk about four, you can let me know. The first is restraining established patterns, right? So our natural response is to act out, to lash out, to avoid, or to oppress. And we have the discipline to stop ourselves from falling into established patterns. The second step is to drop the story around the conflict and the anger and to turn towards the actual feelings in the body. Instead of getting lost in what that person did, what I did, how they're so wrong, how I'm going to get revenge, right? whatever it is, we stop and say, okay, what, is, what does that feel like in the body? The fear, the anger, the confusion. And then once we're with the body, the third step is that we welcome in and we soften into what is happening in the body. So whatever's happening in the body, whatever it is, however challenging or scary it feels, we welcome it in and then we soften into it. We soften into it. And our fourth step is that once we do that, we start to be able to sense what's underneath. Right? So our normal response to the anger might have been avoidance, might have been anger, the conflict, sorry, might have been anger, might have been avoidance, whatever it was. And by softening and opening and turning towards, we create a little bit of equanimity, a little bit of stability. And then we start to see the hurts, the fear, the confusion, the vulnerability, whatever it is that was actually lurking there underneath the anger, underneath the conflict. We begin to see where we were tight and hurt and scared and our false thoughts and stories and the way we've been caught in our pain and our fear, right? So those easy peasy were the first four, <laughs> first four steps. Right, very hard, very hard. That's okay. We just take it step by step. So when we start to welcome and soften, <clears throat> and we start to see what's underneath, which means that when we start to see what's underneath, we're not so caught in the anger and the story of the anger. We're not so caught in the story of the conflict, right? Then we can do step number five, which is we start to let go of blame and we stop making it personal, okay? I wanna be clear what I mean by that. Letting go of blame does not mean letting go of responsibility, and it doesn't mean letting go of clear seeing about what happened, like what caused this conflict? What were the conditions and causes? How might I need and want to respond in the wisest way possible? But letting go of blame is about not taking it personally. It's not about me. And it's also not about the other person, right? It's actually about what's happening. I'm going to explore a little bit what I mean by that. When we start to compassionately open to what's underneath the anger, and so we're no longer trapped in the patterns of blame and anger and resentment and revenge, and you can all pick your favorite revenge fantasy, whatever it was, right? (laughs) Whatever conflict you had. We start to see that those thought patterns are just part of a strategy of self-defense. 
right? They're just ways of actually defending ourselves from the real vulnerability and pain of feeling the fear and pain and loss of that conflict, of whatever's happening right now. And so if we stop defending ourselves and if we turn towards the pain directly, then those strategies of defense start to fall away. And at the very least, there's some space where we don't feel so trapped in those strategies of defense. There's a space where we can start to gently challenge and question those thoughts. And to start to inquire whether we're really correct in blaming ourselves or others. Whether we know for sure, for instance, what the motivation was, right? That person's out to get me. Now, they may be out to get you, right? It's not that that's never the case, right? Sometimes people are out to get you. And even when they're out to get you, it's not personal, right? Even when they're out to get you, it's not personal, right? They're just out to get you because of their own suffering and confusion, right? They're not actually ultimately out to get you, even if they're really out to get you. Right? <laughs> but most of the time, people actually aren't out to get us, right? Most of the time, they're just lashing out in their own confusion and suffering, just like we're lashing out in our own confusion and suffering. But our mind plays this game where they do something and we say they hate us. Or whatever it is our mind projects, right? And we start to blame. <clears throat> and we start to have these stories about how they're a terrible person, and they're evil, and they're bad, and they're the enemy, right? And maybe I'm also a terrible person, I'm, I'm evil, I'm bad, or maybe I'm the good person, and just they're the terrible person, right? There are all kinds of versions of this story. And you can pick whatever your favorite is, right? Wherever your mind goes in the story. And all of those versions of the story are only ways of trying to protect ourselves. It's like we feel like if we can just line it up clearly, the bad guys, the good guys, who's at fault, then at least like the world is stable and it all makes sense. And I know who should be punished, right? And I know who should get the prize. Then everything's okay. Everything feels okay. Everything is a little bit in control, a little bit stable. And it's why letting go of the blame is so hard, right? You might notice that letting go of blame is really hard, or at least I find it really hard. Maybe you don't, right? So I find it really hard. And it's really hard because it's, I think it's protecting me, right? I think the blame itself, part of me thinks, I don't think this consciously, part of me thinks the blame itself is kind of making me safe. It's ordering the world. It's making the world safe and just and okay and predictable and stable. But if we can just see that the blame may not really be serving us, then we can actually start to ask ourselves the question, well, who is this blame serving? Right? Is this really the best way forward? What is being served by this blame? And it's important to recognize when we ask that question, oh, it makes me feel a little bit safer. Like, to see that, to not pretend that isn't true. It's valuable to see the ways, oh, it's propping up my sense of security in this real way. Oh, good, I can see that. I can see why I'm doing this. And when we ask that question, sometimes, right, not always, but sometimes, we can see a little, more, little bit more broadly. We can see that it's not really serving us. And most of the time, where we're in, when we ask that question, sometimes it's like, can't see that at all. So lost in the anger, no ability to even inquire about the blame. Sometimes that's the case. Sometimes we can inquire and it's like, oh, I can see. Not serving me, not serving anybody else. Let it go. But most of the time, 
we're in that really comfortable, uncomfortable in-between place. Right? Most of the time we're in that really uncomfortable place. Sort of like, I kind of see the blame. Part of me knows it's really not a good idea and it's not helped me at all and I should let it go. Part of me is like, no way I'm letting it go. Of course they're terrible and horrible and they deserve to be punished and everything else happened to them, right? <laughs> like, blame is manifesting and I need the revenge and I need it, right? And that's okay. We're just, we just stay right there in that yucky, completely uncomfortable place. And we try to be a little bit more vulnerable and a little bit softer. And we try to open just a little bit more and a little bit more, right? And that place is a really fertile, great place. And unfortunately, we're often in that place, right? <laughs> I'm saying this, I was talking to somebody earlier today, and it's like, it's so important to see. Sometimes where we like, do this practice, and maybe you're new to it, maybe you're not, whatever, you do the practice, there's the narratives about the practice, and the narrative is like, you're there, suffering, I open to it, liberation, move through, and that is true. That narrative is true, right? And we can experience that narrative. But the narrative sometimes skips over the huge in-between part, which is like, yuck, right? <laughs> Just like that incredibly uncomfortable, uncomfortable, uncomfortable place of being with the suffering, being with the suffering, and being with the suffering, and being with the suffering, and not liberating, and not moving on, and coming back to it again, and again with more vulnerability and more softness and more openness and more courage. And it's an essential part of the practice. It's essential. It's an unavoidable part of the practice, right? And it's not pleasant and it's not easy and it doesn't fit nicely into the narrative, right? <laughs> but like, this is how it works and then you get liberated and it's all great. It doesn't fit nicely in there. It's like, ooh, and then you're stuck in here for a long, 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 long time and then something opens up. <laughs> And then you're stuck in it again for a long, long time and something else opens up. And the real work is right in that place of the stuckiness and the ickiness. And they're like, oh God, why does this still hurt? And we open to it and we open to it. And right there you find the freedom. And there's a tremendous courage there. Right? There's a tremendous courage to turn towards our anger that way. It's this sort of determination to hold our seat. We're going to hold our seat, whatever comes, however hard it is, however painful it is. I am holding my seat. I'm totally committed to holding my seat. And just yeah, just the determination and the compassion and the determination itself shifts the relationship to that difficulty, that compassion and determination. In that compassion and determination, there's some place, some ability to let go a little bit, to not take it personally. I remember a retreat I was on where I was just in that that stuck place for a lot of the retreat. Really painful, really painful. And my teacher gave me a practice of just gently saying every time it arose, not me. Like, oh, not me, not me, not me. A gentle, not rejecting anything, which is like, oh, not me, because nothing's me, right? So it's like, also not me, don't need to identify with it. And that's not making it personal. That's not blaming. Right? It's like, can you be in a conflict and be like, oh, not me. Just anger arising, not me. Just them acting crazily, not me. None of it's me. None of it's personal. None of it's really about me. In that place, there's a kind of a more bird's eye view of the conflict. Right? 
We're sort of up and above it a little bit. Pizetzner says, it's a great, great a teaching. He says, you know, people talk about free will and choice. He says, it's all a bunch of nonsense, right? <laughs> people have these like, philosophical debates about whether you have free will or not. He says, as long as you're stuck in a situation and can't actually see it, can't be mindful of and present with it, so there's no such thing as free will. He's talking about free will. Or you might as well talk about whatever you want. Like in our language, he doesn't have anything. He says, like it's like a robot. You know, you're just like things happen, you respond. Things happen, you respond. You get triggered, you respond. You get triggered, you respond. There's no free will. There's no choice. The only the question of choice even arises once you can actually see the situation. Once you're not just lost in it, right? And so this place of opening to our bodily sensations, and then that's sort of not me. That not me. That okay, it's not me. It's not personal. It's not about blame. Can I see this from a little bit of space? There's a little bit of spaciousness there. And in that spaciousness, all of a sudden, there's the potential, there's the possibility to make some choices, right? To make some choices about this conflict. Of course, the other side is, and it's good to just recognize, it's like when we make it personal, we get stuck in you know, what I want to call teams. Right? There's like my team and there's the other team. <laughs> and my team's gonna beat the other team. <laughs> we get stuck in sides, right? I'm right, you're wrong. The Pizetzner says this is why there's this potential danger in, in Talmud Torah and study. Because the self can identify with the position you're arguing for, right? And then you get stuck. It's like me, I'm right, you're wrong, right? <laughs> That's what it's about. And when we can drop that identification, like there's no team, there's no team, there's just the conflict. And what's the wisest way to respond to the conflict, right? Then we can see in a more balanced way the truth. And the balanced truth might be this person has acted harmfully. And it might be that I've acted harmfully. We don't need to sort of, not Pollyannish, we don't need to sort of pretend that things didn't happen, or we didn't act in ways that were hurtful, right? But we can see it without making it personal. And we can see both sides of the conflict. We can see our own part of the conflict. We can see our own lack of wisdom, our own whatever, jealousy, desire for control, violence, confusion. We see that, when we see that, what we see is that there are sort of no evil people out there, right? There's just a bunch of fallible, human beings. There's just a bunch of fallible human beings. Sometimes doing really terrible things, right? It's not to turn our head away from that. Sometimes it's fallible human beings do really terrible things. Really terrible things, right? But even when they do those really terrible things, it's not about them being essentially evil in some way. It's about them being lost in pain and suffering and illusion and mistaken views about the nature of who they are and the nature of who other people is and what's the right way to act in the world, right? It's just because they're lost, ultimately. And then, in that place, we can start to let go of the sides and the winning and start to become more interested in kind of the best solution, right? Sort of just figuring out together the best solution. And again, it doesn't mean, even there, even that interest in figuring out the best solution doesn't mean being a friar. You know, <laughs> it's being clear, and it might be like I'm going to enter a situation, and I'm thinking about the best solution, but the other person is not thinking about the best solution, right? It's good to recognize that, right? And then 
how do I interact with that person in the best way possible to come to the best solution, right? So there's still wisdom there. There's wisdom in sort of thoughtfulness and thinking about what's the right way to interact and what I want to say and not say and what I want to share and not share, right? All totally legitimate and true. But from the place of not winning, but from the place of what's the best solution. And so step six is that when we can let go a little bit of the place of the blame and the taking it personally, there's a possibility to have some real vulnerability, vulnerability <clears throat> and some real deep listening to the other side of the conflict, right? We're no longer so stuck in our story and our perspective. As opposed to say, okay, I'm going to really listen to what that other perspective is. We get to stop defending ourselves and to listen and to open ourselves to the possibility, right? The scary part is that I might actually be changed by this. I might see this in a new way, right? I might be wrong, right? Like, I'm not going to abandon what seems to be true at this point, but I'm going to go in seeing, like, this seems to be true and I could be wrong. Maybe that's not true. Maybe something else is true. Maybe I'm going to see another possibility. And it's, you know, it's huge because it's scary. Scary, especially when we're identifying with our position, which we usually are in some way, even when we're trying to open up. And it's also huge because it's really promising. It creates this possibility of change. It's like, oh, I might interact here and I might actually come out different. That might come out better in some way. It shows us where we're stuck and where we're defending ourselves. And it invites us to take responsibility for our own role in the conflict, rather than putting all the responsibility and blame on the other person. So I want to take a moment in this, really on this teaching, to, to teach a piece from Nachman Abratzlav, a beautiful piece. And I'll read part of it and I'll summarize part of it. And it's part of a broader teaching um, where, where Rav Nachman talks extensively about halal hapanui, the void. He talks about the void. And this whole teaching is about um, sort of the place of the void in our lives, which is the place of sort of uncertainty and not knowing and the place where we don't see divinity and the importance of that place and the importance of seeing divinity and how we hold those two things together, and what the place of sort of faith and spiritual engagement is. And I'm not going to talk about all of that, although that's a great thing to talk about another time. Um, but at one point he talks specifically about um, the place of the void in machloket, in conflict, in disagreement. What's the place of the void? And he says, Conflict is actually an aspect of creation of the world. Right? Conflict can be a creative act. It's a place of creation. Because the essence of the creation of the world was through the void. Referring to Luriana Kabbalah, Luriana Kabbalah, the first act of creation is the contraction of the divine so that the void can be created into which creation can happen. There has to be empty space into which creation can happen. Right? So he says this aspect of the void is actually the sort of the primal work of creation. And he says, The same truth with Machloket. Because even if all the scholars were one, if everybody agreed with each other, there would be no room for creativity. Right? There would be no room for creation. 
Only through the machloket, where they literally divide, where it's the root of machloket, but they divide one from the other. Through this, the void is created, this openness. Which is the aspect of contraction. But how does this happen? But it only works when the words which each one says are for the purpose of creativity, right? Which is for the purpose of creating the world which is created between them in this open space. And then he says, great line, <laughs> so you got to be careful to not talk too much, right? Because <laughs> it's, 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 it's easy to get caught in like, oh, my idea is my... Uh, and it's not about Priyat love anymore, right? It's about this ego trip, it's about the conflict, it's about me winning, it's about this whole other thing, right? Where is that? It's in Lekutei Moran 64. Right? Only according to the need, just according to the, the, the what is necessary for the creativity there, for creation, and no more. Because through this excess of light, this is the Lurianic mythology again, the excess of light which the vessels could not contain, the vessels were shattered and broken. Right, so there's this, there's this opening of the space, which is the space of conflict or disagreement. That space can be filled if we're, if we're interested in being constructive, that space can be filled with creation. But if we get lost and we do too much, then we break. Right? We shatter it, we break it open, and instead destruction happens. And I think it's an amazing teaching, right? Like it's amazing. It's so clear about the sense of these conflicts, if we approach them as opportunities for creativity, have tremendous potential, tremendous potential to transform us and others and transform the world. Right? That's sort of the, that's machloket, the shem shemayim. Right? Machloket for the sake of heaven is a machloket that is going to transform our world. And, you know, we see these machloket in our lives, in our individual lives, politically, whatever, like things happen, conflict happens, and the conflict is actually productive and creative and transforms us and lets us see new things. Right? And it often can't happen without that conflict. It's like Gloria Steinem said, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. <laughs> right? And that's like, that's right. Often we meet things and it's like, why? No. Right? We're like, no. And then if we can pull back a little bit and not have it be so personal, it's like, oh, that's really challenging. And that might be true. Right? That's really challenging and it might be true and it might shift the whole way I lead my life. So it's a great question to sort of investigate in our own conflicts. Where is the conflict coming from? Am I trying to create here, or am I trying to destroy? Right? And destroy, winning is a kind of destruction. Winning is like, I'm going to defeat the other person. Right? Am I trying to destroy, or am I trying to create? Is it coming from, in a certain sense, love or hate? And am I creating more than the situation can handle? I love the image He's the Lurianic image of like every disagreement, every conflict in a certain sense is a, is a clea, it's a container, it's a vessel. 
And there's only so much in any moment that that vessel can take, actually. And we've all experienced this, right? That we start with some conflict. It may even be okay at a certain point. We escalate and escalate, and all of a sudden, like, we're screaming. <laughs> the vessel's broken. Nothing productive is happening there, right? <laughs> like, we've lost. The productivity went out the window half an hour ago, right? So how much can this vessel contain? And when is it time to say, oh, right, okay, I'm just, I'm withdrawing from the vessel. I'm withdrawing from the vessel. And that's wisdom, to say, actually, oops, stopping, not having the conflict anymore, walking away. Just literally walking away, right? Because right now, there's nothing healthy here to be held. We can't hold it anymore. We both, for whatever reason, it happens to all of us, we've lost ourselves too much that we don't have the presence of mind, we don't have the clarity and the wisdom to actually be able to hold this with any kind of wisdom at this moment. It's okay. And the same is true, you know, politically, philosophically. It's like, is the critique we're giving just for the sake of destruction? Is it just to tear apart? Or is it to build up? Is it to create another possibility? And then the final step, step seven, is that from that place, we can start to engage in wise communication. We can communicate possibly now in a loving and respectful way. Which doesn't mean we have to back down, but it means we communicate clearly and honestly and from the perspective of our own investigation, of our experience, rather than as a way of blaming the other person, right? I'm sharing my experience, my genuine experience, rather than trying to show you why you're wrong and I'm right. So for instance, we might say, I feel X, right? Really communicating what I am feeling in the situation, not, I had one student, right, we were talking about this, and he said, well, like, I say to my partner, I feel, she says, like, I feel that you're being X, right? <laughs> that doesn't count. <laughs> There's another way to say, you're doing X, right? <laughs> or you're wrong, right? The thing I feel has to actually about, this is what I feel right now, right? Not what I think you're doing and I'm doing, like, this is the situation, this is what happened, and this is what I feel about it. I feel angry. I feel hurt. I feel shamed. I feel disrespected, you know? I feel confused. Disrespect the feeling? It's a good question. It's probably more hurt is the feeling. But there's something there, what I'll say is there's something about maybe feel unseen. It feels like there's some emotional difference there. Which is not, it's, it's a good question about disrespecting because I'm not trying to imply about what you did or didn't do. I'm just communicating what I feel. So I think there would be respect as a desire or a need, and there's a feeling which arises of disappointment or hurt or something. Of not having the, the need of respect being filled. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Being honest with yourself and them um, really helps. So, for instance, if you investigated the anger and found out what's below it, I want to share the anger, but also share what's underneath the anger. You know, the pain. Being li ready to really listen and hear their experience as their experience, right? To honor and cherish it as their experience. It doesn't mean you have to agree with their experience. It means you just acknowledge that that was your experience. This is what you feel, right? This is what happened, this is what you feel.
And the fourth, which is challenging, is that trying to do it in a way where they can listen to what you're saying, right? There's skill in that, which is how can you communicate this honestly, but in a way where it's not going to overwhelm the other person, right? Because you communicate honestly, you can even communicate your feelings, but sometimes if you don't establish the structure around how to do that, the person is unable to contain that feeling and the honesty of what you're sharing, for whatever reason, right? And same for you. You may be able to contain the level of hurt or anger or whatever it is that the other person's feeling. And there are lots of, you know, models that can help do this. NVC, right? Nonviolent communication is, a, is one model of that. Um, Imago therapy has other models of how to do that. There are other kind of models. You know, RC, there's all kinds of models about that. I'm not going to talk about all of them. But, but it's helpful to actually think about them and to actually have a model or structure in mind. Like, I'm going to say this, you're going to reflect me whatever it is, I'm going to tell you if it's too much. Like, oh, now I actually I can't hear you anymore. Right? And when we do this, what it can engender, and my experience often does engender, is curiosity and interest and compassion, both for ourselves and for our partner in the conflict. Often they can notice that we're not defending ourselves anymore, and, and themselves are inspired to stop defending themselves, right? You can notice it's like, oh, the person isn't defending themselves anymore. It's kind of, it touches the heart and allows you to maybe put down your defenses as well. So I hope those seven steps were helpful. <laughs> um, and you can use them at any time, right? You can use them in the midst of a conflict, in preparation for a conflict as a way to work with yourself and prepare yourself, as a way to reflect upon a conflict and re-engage in it in a healthier way. It can help to set our intention before we go into any conflictual situation, right? An intention of love rather than hate. Or intention of trying to find what's the best solution in the situation, an intention of respect and compaction. So good luck with the conflicts. <laughs> so as normal right now, we'll take a few minutes to open it up to uh, questions, comments, anything anybody wants to share. Just something uh, else which is helpful in terms of when one is stuck, and helpful sometimes for me is to say, like, who's angry within myself? And that allows me to kind of um, disembed from the whole personality and story of anger and just be with the energy of it, uh, which is a much easier thing. Great. Who's angry? Who's protecting? Who's scared? You spoke about walking away from a conflict. I'm interested in the concept of when it's right to turn back in and re-examine with the other conflict. Yeah. Particularly when the other person is is not using this vocabulary, right? It's not even. I'm thinking of one particular conflict in my life where. Granted, there's a lot of assumptions about the other person's reaction, but I think that's part of the preparation because it's like, okay, this is what I know of this person and this is how I think they're going to react. And my thinking of how they would react is if I were to say, okay, these are the terms of this conversation, let's talk about this in a way, it'll be, well, you're that crazy. Like, this is not language that I talk about and just reigniting that anger 
on the other side. And then right. I'm like, well, is there wisdom there to turn back in? Or maybe just leave it at status quo? So can you talk a little bit about when it's right to turn back? Yeah. First of all, I don't know, right? Right. Um, second, second thing I'd say for sure is not within 20 minutes. <laughs> That's actually really important. It's like 20 minutes apparently is just the physiological time it takes for you to like let go of the physiological arousal from anger. So you want to wait at least 20 minutes <laughs> just like the, the heart stop racing, the tension in the body, right? Because you come back with that, it's not going to be very productive for anybody. The third thing is that you know, you do want to try to explore if it's possible for the other person to speak in a different way. And it may not be. And you're not in control of that. Right? You can offer. You can suggest a way. You may not be in control of that. But, now this is really hard, right? <laughs> I'm just saying, but you are in control of certain things. For instance, you could say, let's talk about it. And they can start talking about it. And you could just mirror to them everything they say. They can't stop you from mirroring them, right? And mostly when you're mirrored back, it creates a sense of sort of security and being seen and loved, which enables you to hear the other person in a different way. And that can be really hard if it's not already agreed upon and you're feeling heard, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm just putting it out there. It's not impossible to say, okay, fine, I'm just going to mirror you, right? It's like, I mean, you know, it's a different situation, but, you know, with my kids, when my kids are small, it's like, so we have complex, they get angry at me, so I just mirror them. It's like, I don't have any expectation that we're going to talk through this conflict together, right? We're going to talk about it in certain ways, but it's my job to help them work through the conflict. And any work I need to do on the conflict, I need to do somewhere else, you know, not with them. Like, I can go do that with my wife, you know, <laughs> not with my kids, right? So, so that not with kids might be appropriate sometimes. Now, you have to decide, like, is this worth it and is this possible for me, you know? But maybe if I show up with compassion and presence, maybe there's a possibility we'll be able to talk about it in a different way. But, again, I'll say from my own experience, it's important to be clear about what are you trying to get out of this, you know? Because it may be, and this is also important, that not every conflict is resolvable, at least in the way you want it to be, at least in my experience, you know? Like, there's certain conflicts you have to deal with, you have to deal with it in a certain way, and there's certain conflicts which, for whatever reason, because of the other person, you're not going to be able to engage with it in a certain way, or you might try, and it, it may not be possible, because it's, it's actually not just up to you, right? There's sort of two people or multiple people involved in that situation. So you want to be quite clear about sort of what you're trying to get out of it, and what you're expecting, what is it you want from the other person? And is that really reasonable? You know, I, mean, I think a good example of that for many of us is like, what do we want from our parents, right? And, and at some level, we all probably want something unrealistic from our parents, just because every child wants something unrealistic from their parents, right? And in some way, even if we have a loving, great relationship, our parents are never going to give us that total thing that we want, ever, right? So we might as well let go of that expectation, because it's never going to happen, right? And they can probably give in, you know, whatever. We have different parents, and they're different ways, and they can give in their own ways, and you know, whatever it is, right? 
But we need to drop the expectation of what they're going to give us. And you know, really in family situations, that's true in general. Often parents towards children have some expectations of what the children are going to give, right? And you know, it's fine because as children, we want to be like completely comforted and protected and taken care of. That's a probably reasonable expectation in a certain way as a two-year-old. Oh, that's never going to happen, even as a two-year-old, right? And it's certainly never going to happen to any of us. Um, so what's actually reasonable there? What's possible? The, the verbiage, the, the verbs that you're yeah. using, responding to and solving, and yeah. the creativity in the solving, yeah. what I hear from you is, obviously, in, in, in the broadest way, there's some like tikkun that we're, we're trying to bring in this world. So yes. But, yeah, so, but you can't... How much is that our responsibility and how much... That's right. That? You can't make that everything. Maybe you can. Maybe you can. I don't know. But I think there are certain situations where at least in this lifetime, maybe next time around, I don't know, right? <laughs> like, right here, right now, you may not be able to do it. And it certainly doesn't make sense. There's so much to admit I can. But it just says, don't drive yourself crazy, obsessive over one thing. You may make the effort, and it may be like, no, that's not possible. And okay. 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 Like, you can't... I don't want to send a message. I want to be you know, like, you, you can't resolve everything. You know, not everything gets resolved. I don't know, in my experience. I think that's okay. You've been listening to the Or Halev podcast with Rabbi James Jacobson Mazels. For more information about Or Halev and how to stay up to date with our podcasts, visit the website at orhalev.org.